Welcome to the Road to Nowhere podcast. This is not the voice of Ali Madden as you're so used to, but instead Rory Barlow. It's myself, Michael Jones and the ever-interesting Alan Fahili on this episode. We went for a bit of a more informal episode, a bit quicker as we reflected on the happenings in the World Cup. We recorded just after Spain and Japan went through at Germany's expense. We discussed some of the favourites, some of the more interesting teams and some of the disappointments so far and find out who the most emotional team in the World Cup is. Of course, this episode is produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you might be interested in signing up to the Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. So for more info on that, visit www.freelancefootballops.com and I can personally recommend it as an excellent site too. Without further ado, as Ali would say, enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Road to Nowhere podcast without Ali Madden for a week. I know it's shocking, but you'll adjust your ears. We've had to deal with some big shocks tonight. It was, it was a very, it was a, somewhere between sort of a state of exhaustion. I think we're in. Uh, there's a bit of a buzz. It's, there's excitement. This is the World Cup in Estado Puro, as me and Alan might say, if we were on the continent. We're joined by Alan Feely. Um, who's a friend of the pod and a very fine freelance football journalist. How are you doing, Alan? Yeah, not too bad. Also in a bit of a state of uh, exhaustion slash exaltation after tonight's action. Very intense. few minutes, you could say. You know, Spain almost going out and then eventually staying in and eliminating Germany in the process. Japan wanting a comeback. Costa Rica wanting a comeback. And then it failed to sustain that comeback. It was quite a crazy day, and it's been quite a crazy few weeks of football, to be honest. It's been non-stop since uh, Qatar 2022 got underway, but this is what we love it for, isn't it? Like It's great to um, to be so uh, spoiled with storylines and comebacks and upsets. So yeah, looking forward to breaking it all down with yourself and Michael. Yeah, I should say we're recording this just after the Spain-Germany-Japan and Costa Rica group ended, because that speech could have been given just after the Mexico, Poland, Argentina group, because that was pretty intense as well. Michael, how have you been dealing with all of this excitement in a, in a, in a midweek? Yeah, not very well. I feel like, you know, when most people go through these kind of stages or when you're feeling like this at the end of the day, something normally quite bad or eventful has happened. And it's normally something you go through quite isolated. But this is, I mean, not just with you two here, but this is literally an emotion from just sharing with everyone around the world who's been tuning into the World Cup at the moment. So... Yeah, it's a really surreal feeling. And the fact, just even hearing those words in your head that Germany have not got out of a group stage for two consecutive World Cups, that's something I never thought I'd say. I'll give you the floor on that first. Germany, what the hell went on? I mean, this is a German side that's not like vintage, but they still have like a lot of talented players. Musiala looks like one of the best players in the tournament. Hansi Flick, how... How have they managed to go out? I mean, I know the Japan loss was a shock and then you're sort of relying on 
Spain to beat Japan in the in the final group game. But yeah, this is this is a massive, massive failure because I think everyone thought that after Yogi Lowe went, Yogi Lowe, I mean, it'd kind of be a bit of a restart and Hansi Flick obviously very successful after the Bayern, Bayern stint. How, how on earth has this happened, Michael? Yeah, I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, for what it's worth, I don't think Germany have been terrible in this tournament by any means. I think if you compare this to the 2018 World Cup when they went out, and that was a team which, you know, went on for way too long, you know, to Euro 2020, of course, only last year. But I think there was definitely, in terms of the maybe the impact that's had on their confidence from the last two really underwhelming tournaments, okay, they got out of the groups in Euro 2020, but they lost to England, a team that always fared well against and I think there's clear improvements from those two sides at those tournaments I mean you know against Japan okay they, the main problem was converting chances both against Costa Rica and Japan and arguably against Spain as well but yeah I mean Japan they controlled the game for large parts but never were able to have that two-goal cushion and were ultimately very punished through quite poor defending, which was on show again against Costa Rica. I thought they rallied well, really well against Spain, who, you know, had, were so confident after that Costa Rica game. But, you know, I think it, the, the beauty of the World Cup is the other team's results, and it only, it's only three games. You know, you can have a slight stutter, but Japan are there to capitalise by beating both Spain and Germany. And Japan, who in some periods of games have looked, and in the, most of the Costa Rica game, have looked so, so poor. But they obviously have a lot of attacking ability and able, are able to put the ball in the back of the net. And that was demonstrated in both the Germany and Spain games. And I think Germany's game management was essentially the main problem. But in terms of Hansi Flick, I, I, I think there is you can see something is building there. Yeah, just on... Um... Japan I mean game management was clearly their biggest strength and those kind of two spells I mean they had what 10-15 minutes between the goals against Germany and then they had six minutes between the goals or even less than that it was less than that between the the goals against Spain and when in which they they overturned the result it was almost kind of Real Madrid like I thought their their ability to just to go up the other end score two goals absolutely shocked the opponent and then just sort of hold on to what they had it was uh it was really incredible to watch but I mean Alan obviously Spain's your topic of expertise this is a Spain side that both of us have probably been covering and the sort of feeling I've got from the group inside the Spain camp is that they're quietly confident that they could make a deep run go into this competition perhaps even win it but certainly make at least the semi-finals if not the final and then this Japan result comes from nowhere. Is this Japan result kind of a fair reflection of the Spain side? And uh, how does it damage your damage their outlook? And, and what do you think is going to become of this Spain side now? Well, just for answer, I just want to touch on what Michael said about Germany not being as bad as the results um, indicated. I was just, what he was speaking, I was searching on Twitter because I saw a tweet just after ha- full time, kind of backing up what he's saying, basically. This is the ex- this is from Ollie Hopkins. And it's the XG from the group stage, the entire group stage. So this is the top five. Spain are fifth, 5.3. England are fourth, 5.3 as well. So joint fifth. Uh, Argentina are third, 6.3. France are second, 7.4. And Germany are first, 10. Their XG is 10, which is insane. I didn't make it through. So it shows they have been playing not badly. It's just they've been having issues, as uh, as Michael said. But... 
Yeah, with Spain, I think it's I think it's an aberration to be honest with you. Because if you look at that game today, like I texted you, I literally texted you about thirty minutes gone in the match, I think it was, and I said this is they're playing so well, they really are playing so well. And you said, yeah, can't wait to see them hopefully play Brazil in the corner final. Like we are, I was really impressed with them in the first half. My dad texted me as well; he's watching at home in Ireland, and he was like, they're playing fucking brilliantly, like you know, because like they looked so good, they were so aggressive out of possession. And they're hunting in packs. I remember Ali McCoy is um, referencing the fact that every time that a Japanese player had the ball and was dwelling in the possession for more than two or three seconds, you had three red shirts hunting him down and winning the ball back with intensity. So it was quite incredible, you know. Um, they looked quick and, you know, very confident in possession, the way they are moving the ball, the way they were switching the play. They had... You know, Pedri and Gavi dovetailing with Busquets in midfield. You had Aliandre Bald breaking down the left side. You were the three kind of, you know, kind of forwards come wingers, um, or the two, sorry, aside from Rada, causing so many problems in the kind of half spaces between the wide areas and the center of the pitch. It was a perfect combination, you could say. And I remember at halftime, I think everyone was kind of thinking, you know, Spain the only negative here is that they've not scored three or four or five, which they could have done in the first half, given the dominance. Um, But then, you know, it was a complete kind of crazy first five minutes after the second, uh, second half began. Japan scored twice, second goal of questionable legality. I mean, uh, the screenshots that I've seen made it look like the ball was fully crossed over the line. Um, We'll see if there's any official images or reason it comes out between now and uh, the next few days of our, what the reasoning was behind that, but to me it looked like it was out. Um, but nevertheless, I think Japan deserved to come back in. They were aggressive, as they have been, you know, against Germany as well. Very kind of gung ho, you could say. Unai Simon was weak. Spain were weak defensively, I and mean, they were caught trying to play off in the back in position where they didn't have to. Even though I know that's Luis Enrique's modus operandi. Um, so I think it was a combination of defensive weakness and goalkeeping error because I think that for uh, the first goal, um, which was you know definitely legal, I think Unai Simon could have done a whole lot better. He had two hands behind the ball. He could have parried it away. He should have parried it away. I think it was a moment of weakness from him. Um, not that Luis Enrique would drop him because we know how committed he is to him. Is his number one. Um, and then yeah, I think you know moving forward, they have two or three days to rest and recover now. Knowing Luis Enrique, knowing his mentality, the way he operates, he won't be allowing doubt or fear to set in. Every team has wobbles. We've seen that with Argentina. Um, we've not really seen with Brazil, but we have seen moments with Brazil where they haven't been, you know, completely firing in all cylinders, you could say, especially without Neymar. Um, and then France, you know, the other probably heavyweights in this tournament, they also have, they look strong so far, for sure. But, you know, they did lose to Tunisia um, yesterday. And while it wasn't much changed team, that's still not a great look, in my opinion. So... I think Spain will have time to recover before the game against Morocco on Tuesday. They have an extra day than they would have had. They'll avoid Brazil potentially in the quarterfinals. Um, and, you know, who knows if they put in a strong performance against Morocco, which isn't a given because they're very good, obviously, you know, very good defensively, especially in Morocco. Um, really impressive. Obviously, it's a bit of a kind of derby in many ways. There's, Morocco was very close to Spain. You can see it from uh, points of Andalusia. Um, there's also Moroccans living in Spain. Um, you know, even like the likes of uh, 
you know, Munir um, from Sevilla, currently at Hitafe, is obviously, you know, someone who was playing for both Morocco and uh, Spain in his career. You know, a similar case to other players as well in the, in the past. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, Abde as well. Abde as well. Um, so, you know, and even like the likes of Ashraf Hakimi is, uh, you know, kind of uh, born and raised, you could say, in Real Madrid's academy. So there's a lot of links there, you know. So it's going to be very interesting. But like going back to my earlier point, I think that if Spain were to win that game, put in a good performance, convincing performance with their full team, because they weren't playing their full team today. They weren't playing America Laporte. They weren't playing Ferran Torres. They weren't playing the full 11, you could say. Then I think you go into the quarterfinal with a lot more confidence and a lot more security because at the end of the day, once you get to the last day of competition, anything can happen, you know, and it gets to a very finite point. I think that in Spain, as you'll probably know too, Rory, the expectation this year hasn't been to win the tournament. I know Joseph Pedral said it on um, TV quite recently that they, they have to win the tournament. If they don't win, it's going to be a fracaso or a failure. But I don't think anyone in Spain actually thinks that. I think that... There's a recognition the talent isn't the same as it was in 2008 or 2010, 2012, or even 2014 or 2016. They don't have the same level of players in the squad, um, but they are a good team. They're the best coach team in the tournament, and I do believe that um, if they were able to make it to the latter stages of the competition, to the semifinals perhaps, it would be a big success. So, yeah, I'd be confident that the, this won't be ruinous to their campaign, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting. I think this... I think if Spain start that next round game against Morocco well, I think it shouldn't be too much of a blip from, as you say, Unai Simon kind of palms one in, Pau Torres was playing, and frankly, he's been in terrible form this season and continued that form for Spain. But if they don't start well, if Morocco do get under their skin, if they are uncomfortable for that match, then I think it could really send them spiralling. I think that's the that'll be the thing that concerned Luis Enrique most from this match is the fact that he brought on Ferran Torres, he brought on Marco Asensio, he made those changes and it didn't really get much of a reaction. And I know the situation was different as Spain were still going through and they kind of knew that they would unless Costa Rica won, which which they weren't. But but even so, I think the fact that they struggled to really break down Japan, I think it was the almost chance and um, was kind of the biggest and the best. But, but yeah... I think the Spain, I mean, we've said that they have weaknesses. They can be beaten by anyone. They can beat anyone. I think that will very much be the case. And uh, Luis Enrique just needs to make sure that they're having their good days in the biggest matches. I think also, yeah, I think also I would be be more confident from a Spanish perspective if they were playing Croatia than if they were playing Morocco. Not because Croatia are any worse than Morocco, just the style of opponent they are. I think that Spain would be better suited to playing against them. I think Spain are generally better playing against teams who are, you know, of a similar level to them. I think Morocco, they're in uncharted territory practically. I know they made it there in 1982, I think it was. Or was it 86? I'm not sure. 86, I think. Last 16. Like they are basically playing with house money now, you know, and they're a very tough, competitive team who are clearly quite united. So they're a very dangerous, um, dangerous foe. So like while it's obviously good to avoid Brazil, um, it's potentially a banana skin to play Morocco. Yeah, and just coming on to kind of Brazil, France, those have been the two that haven't really had major blips. And I mean, yeah, there was a Tunisia loss for for France, but but they were very, very rotated and unlucky not to get a point in the end. Michael, who have you kind of seen that's looked good and who's kind of disappointed you so far? I mean, 
I, I for one, I haven't really been that impressed with anyone, to be honest. I think, I mean, every team, there's teams that have looked good. They've te- they've looked decent in moments, but each team has shown me weaknesses enough for me to say that anyone from six, seven teams could win this tournament. I don't think it's, I think it's very tight. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think there's six or seven teams that can easily win it. And I think there is a big spectrum between Spain, who at times look like they've maybe played closest to their sort of A game in spells during the group stage to a team like Brazil, who have almost been comfortable relying on moments. And even arguably England at times versus Wales, I don't think they actually had to ever do that much to, once they broke them down, they kind of just picked their moments. And I think there's a lot of teams, France at times like that against Australia and I think there's a lot of teams like that. In terms of the two teams I've actually been really probably most impressed with on a consistency basis, I say consistency, I'm going to start with Argentina, even though they did actually lose their first game. But I think we've seen a really improved sort of rally response from them. You know, Mexico and Poland, two really tough games for very different reasons, two very different types of opponents as well. Okay, both were sitting back, but in terms of the way both teams pressed the ball when they were playing Argentina and their shape and sort of where some of the defensive strengths were for Poland, it was arguably they were a bit more physical, a bit, um, you know, taller centre-backs, harder to beat in sort of in crossing situations, whereas, you know, for Mexico, it's maybe more positional. But I think we saw a real improvement in Argentina. You know, they could have scored so many goals in that game versus Poland and how on earth Poland have qualified for the next round is beyond me. <laughs> Oh, from nothing, literally nothing. Like, yeah, it's incredible. The Mexicans but, are funny, like, you know? Well, that's a thing as well. And I think, you know, Mexico have this, like, I, I don't know, it's an age-old record. I think this also dates back to 82, 86, where they qualified for around the 16 and not progressed any further up until then. So there's another bit of history gone. But, no, I have been really impressed with them. I think, you know, they've almost realised their strongest team as the tournament's gone on in terms of centre-back partnership. Enzo Fernandez, who has really caught the attention of so many big clubs, I'm sure, this season for his um, performances for Benfica after arriving from Argentina. Alexis McAllister having an excellent campaign with Brighton Hove Albion. He's also starred for Argentina. Messi's been brilliant. Julian Alvarez has also been really a really sort of dynamic asset for them in attack. The other team I've been really impressed with, actually, are Portugal. I really had low hopes, low expectations for Portugal, which is maybe partially the reason I'm a bit more impressed with them. But I think going forwards, they've been a lot more creative than I expected them to be. You know, you kind of think of a Fernando Santos team, you know, whether it's Greece sort of a decade ago or the Portugal team that won the Euros, but even his team sort of in Euro uh, 2020 in the World Cup, where they didn't really progress very far. Uh, Round the 16, I think, on both occasions, the they for all they you know they've been blessed with what you know as Belgium now it's become a bit of a tainted word in terms of or phrase in terms of the golden generation but they look like they could be about to embark on another here with the sort of depth of talent they have especially in attacking areas but we've actually started to see them link up really well in the group stage I thought it was a really convincing you know Uruguay had moments against them but I thought overall they were deserved winners I know the penalty itself was pretty controversial. I think I'm in one of the rare few that actually thought it was a penalty. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think I think that'd be really good. And obviously, if they come across, I think they would come across Spain in the quarterfinals if they're to sort of win their games, and that would be a really fascinating encounter. But I'd say they're two of the teams that have stood out for me so far. 
Right, I'm going to let Alan loose on Argentina and Brazil in two seconds because I know he, he will want to talk about them inevitably. Argentina, for my money, they need to get to, I think, the quarterfinals or the semifinals without facing one of the big guns for me. I think they need momentum and I think they need to play their way, way into this tournament. I think the Saudi Arabia game, some people have turned it into a positive and told them that it's it's good because it's kind of kept them on their toes and it's kind of shocked them back down to earth after going so long unbeaten. And perhaps that is the case, but I think every game is an ordeal for this Argentina side. I think <laughs> every game is a thousand minutes long. It's stressful. There's tears. Pablo Aymar is basically an emotional wreck on the touchline. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to watch them watching their own team. Um, and that's, they, I think they have improved. They've looked better. Enzo Martinez is... I mean, he's been one of their best players so far. He's essential. I would, I wouldn't mind it if Rodrigo De Pal was to drop out the side because he's been absolutely dreadful for about eighteen months now, and and we're starting to run out of arguments to really put him in that team. But yeah, I think they need to they need to get through to the quarters or the semis without really facing a big gun. Then I think they can take them on once they have that momentum, once they have that confidence. You saw in both the Poland and the Mexico games just how much better they played when they were a goal up. I wouldn't like them to see them go go down to one of the sort of uh, more defensively solid sides because I think that could potentially be their undoing. But but yeah, Alan, Brazil or Argentina, take your pick. Which one you want to dig into first? Well, I guess we're talking about Argentina at the moment, so that makes sense to start with them. Um, I agree with what you're saying, the both of you, to a large extent. I think that you know they've not been overly impressive, but then at the same time, this isn't. Spain 2010 this isn't Brazil 1982 this isn't a team that's based upon you know kind of cavalier football it's not based upon a performance kind of idea it's basically a team that's kind of been strung together with different players playing different roles and this sum is more than their individual parts if that makes sense and they're more based upon kind of a collective idea of suffering and kind of grit and kind of determination than any kind of conceptual or philosophical idea, if that makes sense. And generally when they have succeeded, it's not been by playing sexy football or winning games comprehensively. It's been winning games in a hard-fought manner. And that's what's connected the Argentine public to this team in a way that they're probably more uncritical and behind the United of that behind them than they have been of any team in, in, in many a year, you know. So I think there's really a good synergy there. And that's a large part because of that imperfection. I mean Rodrigo de Paul is a good example. I mean, like I, I tweeted after the the, uh, the second game, I think it was the um the Mexican game, and I was kind of saying it's crazy really how this guy has declined so badly in the last, you know, 18 months since joining Atletico Madrid. But I was looking at his numbers today, and he actually he's completed more passes than any Argentine player. And his passing percentage is like in the 90th percentile. I'd say they're all so, center halves personally, but yeah. <laughs> but it's funny because like you know, I guess that doesn't really match up with the eye test in many ways. But uh, yeah, another player, Nicholas Otamendi, has like a freakish number of like, you know, individual uh, kind of uh, actions in defense, like headers one, um, tackles one, interception. He's like really, really high in comparison to other defenders in the World Cup so far. It's quite impressive. And he's someone who's always seized upon as a weak link because of his reputation in Manchester City. But, you know, even though he's 34 now, He's been doing a good job with Benfica in the last few seasons in, in Portugal. And there's actually a lot of players in this team who don't like, I think it was Gary Neville said it the other day after the um the polling game. 
you're these players you don't you wouldn't really take them even for England like I mean you look at like McAllister who's a good Premier League player but would you put him in an over Bellingham or Foden or, no you wouldn't you know similarly you've DePaul who's in terrible form as you mentioned even though his numbers are still pretty good it seems in the World Cup so far it was also had a you know tumultuous personal life with this huge Argentinian uh, pop star, some sort of cheating scandal. I don't know what happened Teenage exactly. Stuff, so uh, has been far stuff, too yeah. frequent on my timeline for a yeah, year. You follow her Instagram, won't you, Rudy? <laughs> I, I don't know, but I see everything she posts all the same. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, obviously you have Di Maria, who so far like, really passes best this uh, this World Cup. In my opinion, um, the, but then you, you do have the likes of Alvarez coming in doing very well, Enzo Fernandez, you mentioned doing very well. Um, you know, so it's kind of a weird mix, really, of players who are technically over the hill and players who are kind of maybe not at the in their prime yet. But then Messi is, of course, is the person who's united them all together, and he is like, I think he's been looked, he's been very mortal so far at this tournament, but he has looked very good as well. Um, and like, I thought he was very good, um, last night against Poland, I thought he really was. Not prime Messi because it was, of course, the moment where you know he was throwing goal and he slipped in this decisive moment, or there was a moment when he was breaking and he knew he didn't have the pace to get away from his marker. I think it was uh, the left back, the Polish left back. So that's kind of a sad thing to see, but I do think overall he still carries a real threat. And the more Argentina play against better teams who aren't going to play in such a low block and are going to take the game to Argentina more, um, for instance, say. France or I think Brazil is a bit different because Brazil is going to have an edge to it that other games wouldn't have or Spain or in England I think he'll have more space within which to operate and also I think that this Argentina team is more suited to playing that kind of game where they're not quite the underdog but they're not the favorite either and because of the nature of this group stage losing that game to Saudi Arabia who I loved watching this World Cup by the way I thought they were a brilliant addition that played such good football so aggressive so unique so um so adventurous as well but I think that that result left Argentina with you know such a hole to dig themselves out of that it amped up the pressure even more so so while I get that you know the celebrations post a game in the dressing room is over the top and emotionally unstable but I do think that once we get to the latter stages of the competition and come up against the big guns if they do make it that far then um and they should beat Australia to be fair then I think we're going to see a different Argentina. So I think that's that's going to be interesting for me. And uh, I mean, Alan touched on them very, very briefly. And if it was up to me and Alan, and possibly Ali too, I probably wouldn't even bother with them because, I mean, they're just another team for me. But uh, England, Michael, I'm going to give you 100 seconds to give me your thoughts on the English national team. Um, are they any good or not? Yeah, I can see it's nine minutes on our remaining meeting time. So I'm trusting you to actually keep it to the second. It's just giving me about 90 now. But uh, yeah, I think they're quite good. I mean, I think what you've got to remember is this is a team that's got to the semi-final of the last World Cup, final last European tournaments. Okay, you can sort of throw the case at them that they've had easier runs than um, other teams have. They have been on the easier side of the draw for both of those tournaments. But I think, nevertheless, you can't write off that experience. And I think that experience really did show through the group stages. Honestly, watching England wasn't fun during the group, you know, the football for the players <laughs> they me. had. Hey, I, I argue with you, the USA match was not fun. I don't care what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> but I think all of them almost felt like qualifying matches. You know, I think the Iran and Wales games in particular, I think even the US game. And 
I did actually agree with what Gareth Southgate said about this. His sort of analysis, he wasn't that pessimistic, although, you know, a lot of the fans are throwing beers wherever they have you and, you know, vocally very angry. But Southgate was like, we didn't come away from that with a defeat. We, you know, they didn't have to overexert themselves. Yeah, USA had the better of the play, but there was still a relative sense of control to that match. And I think the one sort of really exciting thing about England that I've probably not seen as much in the previous two tournaments is that you do feel like they can actually really step up. And I think they've got so many more options in the final third. I think there's still big questions over actually knowing the best formation, the best starting eleven, And I think that's where the more serious issues are, whereas I think a lot of the other top teams have a much better idea of what their best eleven is. But... Otherwise, yeah, I'm pretty impressed with them, not aesthetically, but in terms of the progress they've made so far. Yeah, I don't think you'd catch Gareth Southgate at Box Park getting beer all over his waistcoat. Um, that doesn't really seem like his kind of scene. I do find it funny that Southgate, in inverted commas, is perhaps the most Italian manager that England have had for quite some time. I think, like there was always a thing about foreign culture and English coach and uh, sort of tournament nows and how, how England should play and stuff. But I think Southgate's brought more of that than anyone else in their last kind of uh, recent history. Um, as you said, Michael, we are kind of running out of time. I'm going to throw the floor to both of you before we go. Give me one of the sites that you've been impressed with or one of the sites that you just want to talk about that's maybe not amongst the elite that we've been talking about and discussing sort of potential winners is that Australia? Michael, I'll come to you first. Um, who's who's been on your mind this World Cup? Yeah, I'd, I'd say Australia have been maybe the most the biggest surprise story so far. It's been yeah, really sort of heartwarming seeing their players. You know, a lot of them who you know aren't playing in at least for a major side in the top five league. I think barely any of them are playing for a team in the top none. five league. What, nobody is it none? Nobody. None. Obviously, there's quite a few with experience, but yeah, that's what I mean. It's fantastic, isn't it? Like you can see that the progress I made. I mean, even against France in the first game, you know, they had such a bold approach taking the lead. I think it was Goodwin who scored that goal, and the victory against Tunisia, who looked really impressive from my point of view against Denmark, and obviously proved to be against France as well. And then I think the game I watched most closely was against Denmark. I'll come on to very briefly after this, but I thought. Australia just had such a good game plan going into the game. I know that they have Rennie Muhlenstein in the backroom stuff. He was, you know, a massive coach uh, for Manchester United during the latter years for Sir Alex Ferguson. And I'm sure sort of he's played a big role. But I think there's such a sense of togetherness. I think Aaron Moy kind of involved um, and captures that in the middle of it. And, yeah, I think they've been a real feel-good story for me because looking at that squad, I expected absolutely nothing from them in this tournament. Denmark, on the other hand, a team, again, I didn't actually expect that much from them, but, you know, they were widely reported to be dark horses. And I think their sort of, yeah, lack of sort of reflessness in the area, their, that lack of creativity, a team that have struggled a bit in group stages in the past two tournaments. And I think that they are very slow starters. Maybe they would have got better as the tournament progressed. But... I would say they're probably the most underwhelming team, given the group they were given. And given, you know, a lot of their players are at their prime and to go out with one point is just so disappointing. Questions to be answered by Casper Hulman. Alan, who's been on your mind this World Cup? 
I, I like Morocco a lot for the underdog. I think they're doing really well. I think they're a very interesting, interestingly set up, shall we say. Um, I like the kind of narrative that seems to be, you know, developing within the squad and within the group around the squad. I like Morocco as a country too. I like the kits as well. I think they're quite nice. So, yeah, I'm happy to see them do go well. I'm interested to see how they get out against Spain. I think they're going to pose a stern test. Um, who else do I like? I like Senegal as well. I think that um, Alucise is probably, you know, the best coach working with an African nation at the moment. I think they're doing some really interesting things. And I think that he's quite tactically astute as well. And that he's, you know kind of compensated quite well for the loss of Sadio Mane, as debilitating as that is. So I'm interested to see how he sets his team up against um, England in the last 16, even though Idrissa Gay will be missing um, through suspension. Um, it's just to be an interesting test, in my opinion. Um, I was said earlier, like Saudi Arabia too. I like the way they're, the atmosphere at those games and that kind of thing. And, you know, the atmosphere the fans brought and the intensity at which they played, the unorthodox nature of their approach, um, the halftime antics slash style of the coach, Hervé Renard. Um, and then I guess we haven't touched them really in this podcast, but Brazil are also very interesting. Not underdogs by any stretch of the imagination, but um, an interesting side. Um, very conservative in many ways, like you were mentioning with uh, Gareth Southgate. Chiche is a very similar coach in that he's defence first. And then Marquinhos and Danilo and Thiago Silva and Alexandro, they have uh, one of the most solid defences in the tournament. People criticise the fullbacks, but in reality, Danilo is essentially a, a centre-back playing right-back and Alexandro has some very good numbers and defensively so far at this tournament. I think he leads Brazilian team in tackles. So, you know, the, the fact that they don't cross the line, basically, and kind of leave space for the midfielders and the attackers to do that thing is quite an interesting kind of old-school uh, approach, you could say. So, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to seeing how they get on for the rest of the competition, for sure. Um, but what about you, Rory? Who's, your, uh, who, who's impressed you? Who's impressed me? That's a good question. Saudi Arabia would probably be the obvious choice. I have quite liked Australia. I'm intrigued to see how Ghana do tomorrow um, against Uruguay with their grudge match against Luis, Suar Luis yeah. Suarez. Um, although I do think it's perfectly set up for Luis Suarez to come on and score a last-minute winner to send Ghana out again. I think that would be more than... I mean... I would feel bad for Ghana. I do quite like Ghana, but it would also be terrific footballing narrative. So uh, that's that's what I support in the World Cup more than anything. You know how crazy these Ghanaians are. We saw it today, the, the devil talk. You're just losing subscribers in Ghana right now by saying these things. You're going to get a, a hate campaign <laughs> launched against you like Harry Maguire did in Ghanaian Parliament today. Oh, that was I, I either Luis Suarez last minute winner or Inyaki Williams last minute winner one of the two I don't mind as long as it's a good game to be honest I will wrap it up there because as we say we're running out of time and um, yeah we're we're all exhausted after that match so I don't want to keep you any longer but uh, thank you very much for coming on Alan it's been a pleasure as always my pleasure always good to chat with you guys yeah cheers guys Cheers, Michael. Yeah, so Alan recently hired on a permanent deal by someone who knows what they're doing. Um, but yes, thank you very much for listening to the Road to Nowhere podcast. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time again with more World Cup content. And have a good week and weekend. Mm -hmm.